Hello, and welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. What a time to be alive when there are so many socialists running for Congress and so many other local and statewide and national offices that it's difficult for us to schedule them all on this podcast. We've interviewed two socialists recently who are running for House, Heidi Sloan, who's running in Texas, and Kathy Kunkel, who's running in West Virginia. And today we're interviewing a third House candidate, who is Rebecca Parson in Washington's 6th District. Rebecca is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. She's an activist with the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee, a court-appointed special advocate for Pierce County, advocating for children in the foster care system, and somebody who's done a ton of other stuff, which she will explain in this interview. Here's Rebecca. Rebecca, hello. Hi, Micah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So why don't you start off with just telling us a little bit about yourself and your district? Yeah, so I grew up moving around overseas every two to four years when my father was in the Foreign Service, and we moved back to the States when I was 12. In college, I took a course on genocide studies, and that really changed the trajectory for me a lot. I went to Srebrenica for the 12th anniversary. Uh, they do a funeral every year there. I went there. I saw a kind of history in the moment happening. It was a really important experience in my life. And after that, I went to Guatemala and Mexico to learn Spanish. And then also while I was there, I volunteered as a human rights observer with the Zapatista village there. And they were being uh, threatened by paramilitaries funded by the Mexican government. I went there and I did 20 days there. And that was amazing because I got to see firsthand the way a society can look when it's set up by the people for the people. And compared, so the Zapatistas own millions of acres of land, millions of acres of uh, economic output. And as compared to the areas around them and then all of Mexico, they've greatly increased the status of women. Uh, they've reduced maternal and infant mortality. They've increased literacy. And all these amazing effects have happened. And that was really amazing for me to see. I read The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein around the same time <laughs> and started to see the kind of systemic thing. And when I was in Guatemala, saw the impacts of their 30-year civil war, which was kicked off by our intervention and toppling of their democratically elected leader. So all these things kind of percolated in my mind. And uh, when I moved to Washington State, got more involved Politically, I was a co-leader of Indivisible Tacoma for a year and a half, and I loved the Indivisible guide and how strategic and tactical it is, but I found it really did not work that well on our representative. I think that it seems to really work wonders on Republicans, but these corporate Democrats who are used to being coddled and not being challenged doesn't really move them at all. And so I started to get really frustrated with how all that action couldn't actually change anything. Just to rewind to some of your personal history stuff, I mean, you're describing going to Guatemala and learning about the genocide there that the U.S. intervention uh, helped spark and, and, and cover for and reading books like Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine and being in Zapatista communities. Uh, this is a common experience, in fact, like very similar to my own. I don't know if you're uh, in your 30s like me, earlier mid 30s, uh, but it's it, for the leftists of, who are sort of of our uh, of our vintage. Uh, that this is a kind of common experience, and most people who that I knew who went through that path uh, didn't end up running for Congress, in part because you come to sense that running for Congress 
uh, at least before 2016, was not the way that you would be able to stop these bad things from happening, to stop future applications of the shock doctrine, to stop future U.S. intervention in Latin American countries, uh, etc. So uh, it wasn't, in, in my reading, until the Bernie Sanders campaign came along and showed that people who held those kind of values uh, could actually use a run for office to, you know, fight for those kinds of truly leftist progressive uh, demands. Is that your experience at all? Or am I totally off base? Yeah, I wasn't really involved with politics. And I am, you know, I'm 34. And I wasn't involved with politics that much for the rest of my 20s after that. Uh, It didn't even ever occur to me to run for office. And it seemed a bit hopeless. You know, you look into it a little bit. And, you know, the advice you get is don't even bother unless you have a lot of rich friends, you need to have a network of this many people, you need to spend this much time, X amount of time building your way up and get on this commission, get in this position that build your way up, pay your dues. And yeah, it really just didn't seem like a way to change things to me. But after Bernie Sanders started getting momentum in 2015, 2016. And then I was especially fascinated with Trump and the way that he was speaking and communicating. I had read George Lakoff's The Moral Politics. And I, I do copywriting. I have an MFA in poetry. I'm really fascinated in communication and how he's communicating and the way that the whole centrist pundit class and mainstream media was writing Trump off. And I thought it was a big mistake. And really, the only I remember reading some of Nathan Robinson's articles and feeling like finally, an island of sanity and ocean of just pure idiotic punditry. Yeah, I mean, very few people, except for people like Nathan Robinson, talk about the fact that Trump is actually an extremely Mm -hmm. effective political Mm -hmm. communicator. He wouldn't be president of the United States if he wasn't an excellent political communicator. Exactly, yeah. He's a very good communicator. And the whole debate, is he smart? Is he dumb? Is he a master strategist? I don't know. Maybe he's just cunning. I think whatever he has, maybe he's smart, maybe he's not. But he definitely has this kind of cunning and where he can just tap into the emotional language. And I think that Bernie has amazing plans, amazing policies, and he taps into the emotions as well of people. So they really feel like they're actually being heard and you're talking about something real, not just endless centrist spreadsheets of how the economy is doing better. And if you feel like your life sucks, well, you know, buck up because, you know, the this chart, this bar chart shows us that things are getting better. So what are you complaining about? So what does that look like? Uh, that kind of taking lessons from Trump's political communication, as well as l- the lessons that we just referenced from Bernie's previous campaign a- and his current campaign. What does that look like in your district and in your campaigning in the district? Um, you know, how, how do you plan? Well, first of all, maybe if you could describe the, the district itself, it's sort of like demographic makeup. And then how do you as a candidate plan to sort of use those lessons from both the the left and right that we were just referencing in your own campaign? Yeah, so my district is the 6th Congressional District, and it's south of Seattle. It includes Tacoma, Kitsap County, the entire Olympic Peninsula. So if you picture the top leftmost corner of the state, that's what it includes. And the Olympic Peninsula is a giant area. It includes a national park and forest with um, big, big swaths of... You can't drive through it all. It's an amazing wilderness with ancient forests and 
that area, the Olympic Peninsula, was the timber capital of the country. Uh, in the 50s, when people were buying homes and all this new construction after the war, uh, it was timber from the Olympic Peninsula that went into the borders that made a lot of the houses around the country. And so companies came in, they extracted the timber, the profit, what they needed. Uh, and then when it dried up, it wasn't profitable for them anymore. They just took their profit, extracted the resources and left. And it left this gaping hole where jobs used to be. I have a friend whose dad worked for Weyerhaeuser and now she's a nurse there. She works with uh, uh, people who live in a homeless encampment in Aberdeen, which is where Kurt Cobain was from. And she's deeply rooted there in that community. She said that if a community could have PTSD, this is what it would look like. And that is what it looks like. You know, uh, opioid addiction, alcoholism, suicide, depression, um, people, you know, if you can get a job, it doesn't pay enough uh, to make ends meet. You have to work two or three jobs, each one at, you know, part-time hours so that your employer doesn't have to quote-unquote give you benefits. And uh, it's just people talk about the opioid epidemic and, you know, the home quote-unquote homelessness issue and stuff like that. I think it's really despair and a despair epidemic. And that's what I like about the broad vision of Bernie Sanders and AOC, the Green New Deal, broad policies that address it in the way it needs to be. So everybody needs a job. Everybody needs a home like with the homes guarantee that just came out, which I support, you know, um, federal rent control combined with 12 million new units of social housing in the next 10 years, a federally guaranteed union job that will pay a living wage if you want it, guaranteed health care. And the idea that this is interesting about my district, people think Washington State, it's progressive, it's blue, and it is blue. My district is very safely Democratic. Um, we haven't had a, a Republican representative since the 60s, I think. But what's interesting is that one county, Grace Harbor, which was the one I was just talking about where my friend lives, uh, they went for Trump, and that was the first time they had gone for a Republican in the presidential election in something like 70 or 80 years. This district is an interesting way to test the dueling theories, you know. Centrist, do we just go even more Republican, like fake Republican, and hope that they go for us instead of the real thing? Or do we go progressive and give people really progressive populist policies that will actually help them? And so that's what I'm doing. And it's interesting. I've been out, I went with one group that was out canvassing about the Green New Deal, and uh, this was not for my campaign. It was just to talk to people about the Green New Deal and ask them what they thought it should include to make sure that it benefits rural Washington and not just the cities and towns. And we did not ask people who they voted for, but some volunteered that they voted for Trump. And even those people, so we would go through and talk about things. Uh, what's your biggest issue with cost of living? Um, who do you think has caused this problem? Is it landlords, corporations, bosses? And then what do you think can be done to fix it? And we would tell them about the Green New Deal and show them a list of policies and say, which of these policies are most important to you to have as part of the Green New Deal? And there would be things like free college, federal jobs guarantee, uh, free childcare, um, all these policies. And even the people who told us they voted for Trump look at the list and would say, well, I don't know. It's really hard to say because I like all of these policies. So can you tell us a little bit about the person you're up against the incumbent Derek Kilmer I found an article about him that the headline is Derek Kilmer colon leading the moderate brigade <laughs> and that seems to be a big uh he's he's really going to the barricades for moderation <laughs> right. what I've gathered he's gonna take a stand a firm stand for moderation yes <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah he's a uh, 
chair of the New Democrats Coalition, which is the Third Way Caucus in Congress. He also belongs to the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is funded by dark money and Republican billionaires and actively works to squash progressive legislation. They were behind the push to um, not have Pelosi be speaker, but replace her with somebody more conservative. That was their push. And as chair of the New Democrats, he's in a long line of, you know, that's a position that Joe Crowley held a little while ago. It's something you do when you're trying to network in the party, um, curry favor, because through the New Dems, you uh, raise a lot of money. So he raises money for the New Dems and he gets money from the New Dems. So if you look at it, you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) you're raising money for the New Dems and then you're taking money from the New Dems. And then he's also raising money for himself and then distributing it out to all the other centrists and to the DCCC and various state parties to buy their favor. And Joe Crowley, as we know, he was on his way wanting to be Speaker of the House. I think that's what Derek Kilmer is doing as well. And so what is it substantively that he's done besides his engagement with these centrist and, frankly, conservative institutions like Third Way, uh, what are some of the other issues uh, that, that he's uh, governed on during his time on the Hill that, that you disagree with? Yeah, well, one is he, he's taken a lot of money from Raytheon in his first year in Congress. He, his first run, he took 10000 from them. In the following year, he co-sponsored a bill for an Israeli defense system, the contract for that went to Raytheon. He voted to fast-track the TPP. Almost nobody in the district wanted him to do that. All the progressives were against it. All the unions in the state were against it. And this is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the free trade deal that Bernie made, opposition to a big part of his 2016. Yeah, definitely. And I may have overspoken. Um, It was every every union in my district was not for it. Um, There was a small handful that didn't take any position on it, and all the rest of them were vocally, actively against it. He ignored them and voted to fast-track it. And Washington state is one of the most trade dependent states in the country. We have a port that gets uh, shipments from China and all over the world. And even the long-term men's union, which I have friends in, were against the DPP. So people say, well, you've got to be careful. You know, we're dependent on it. Well, look, if, <laughs> if the longshoremen in every union in the district is against it and our representative voted for it anyway, I think that's a clear vote for corporate interests. Uh, when he was in the state legislature, he voted to... Um, limit the political power of unions. He refuses to support Medicare for All or the Green New Deal. He's just kind of the the king of incrementalist policies. A great example is that we have uh, in my district, there are tribes that live on the coast and they're being threatened by rising sea levels. And one of them also, the Makah Nation, has a school in the tsunami zone. Their current evacuation plan is decades old, and the evacuation plan is just, if there's a tsunami, run a mile uphill. That's the plan. And uh, they need money to move the school out of the tsunami zone. There's also the Quinault Nation has a village that they've lived in for eons, and they're having to... It's going to take over a million dollars to move it uphill. And so Derek Kilmer will put out these bills that sound great. Um, like I can't remember what the name of this one was, but Basically, the content of it was to study ocean acidification, the possible causes, and mitigate potential impacts. Like, look, we already know it's happening. We know what the impacts are. There are orcas in the Puget Sound that are dying partly because of acidification. And you're just going to study it some more and then look at what might be causing it and then look at ways to mitigate possible impacts. And that's just like centrism in a nutshell and conservative Democrats in a nutshell. Mitigate possible impacts. We already know the impacts are happening. They're happening right now. And we should not mitigate them. We should stop them from happening. So if you were to win this race and 
displace Representative Kilmer, who'd be, I don't know, forced to go peddle his centrist wares elsewhere. Work uh, for a lobby. Become yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a lobbyist. Work with Joe Crowley. Yeah, really. There's, there's a growing number of them. Who, yeah. I'm sure they can figure out something to do together. Uh, yeah. But if you, were right. to, if you were to win and displace him, uh, you would be sort of in or adjacent to this group of progressive and uh, socialist legislators on the Hill, colloquially referred to as the squad. And, of course, uh, the squad has, you know, ostensibly four members, uh, you know, of varying degrees of progressiveness uh, between the four of them. Uh, But they're seen as this kind of, uh, you know, important electoral uh, representation of this rising uh, populist left socialist movement in this country. Uh, but there are an extreme minoritarian current of the larger House of Representatives. Um, if the best case scenario in this cycle happens and everybody who's running as a democratic socialist and as a strong progressive wins, there will still be a very small minority of people in the House who hold those kinds of views. So how do you view your role as a legislator knowing that even in the best case scenario – people who see the world like you will be a small minority of the uh, people in Congress. How do you deal with that? And and, and what does that mean for how you would go about governance? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something that I talked with uh, other DSA members about when I was thinking about running. And I think there's two, generally two ways to make a difference. Both, you know, both can be done simultaneously. One is just getting the the way uh, AOC did by, you know, the Sunrise Movement was there uh, protesting. She came in, essentially held a mini, mini press conference using the inside out strategy to build up uh, momentum around the Green New Deal, getting it into newspapers and discussions across the entire country and basically changing the entire debate. And I think the way that Bernie Sanders has done, you know, there was no way in 2015 that Medicare for All was going to happen. And now... Um, even if a lot of the candidates are putting forward um, fake versions of Medicare for All, like Medicare for All Who Want It or Medicare for All Frameworks and BS like that, at least it is now something that you uh, they all are talking about and they have to seem to be for. <laughs> and so it becomes the new measuring stick by which everything else is measured. It's the same thing with a lot of the um, squad's policies um, when Bernie rolled out the homes guarantee and rent control. And so that's one big way. And I think as well, something that can be done with the squad is um, <clears throat> Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, they've come out not just taking the typical democratic line on Israel and Palestine and saying actually the needs of the Palestinians should be considered as well. They're doing a fine job by themselves, an excellent job by themselves, but they could use some backup from other people so that they do not have to be the two uh, it almost seems that way sometimes where they're the two sole ones just bearing the weight of, of fury and rage and death threats. And I think that there needs there need to be more people uh, speaking out on this as well. You're a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Can you talk about how you came to join and what it means to you to be a member of DSA? Yeah, so I first started hearing about it when, about democratic socialism, when Bernie Sanders was running and describing himself as a democratic socialist. I already was on board with a lot of the ideas, even though I had not uh, been reading about it. I might not have described myself as a socialist, but I mean, I saw 
um, you know, a form of an alternate political philosophy going on with the Zapatistas and their self-governance. And so I was always kind of thinking about things along those lines, but never really described myself that way. And then I started hearing Bernie talking about democratic socialism. And then when AOC won and right when doesn't seem to be as much anymore, but at least when she first won, it was constant, like even on mainstream media, what is socialism? What does it mean? What is democratic socialism? And I looked into DSA and I was just extremely impressed because I saw people who were unabashedly left and had policies that I thought were the best and that are the best for the people. And not only were they idealistic and left, but also practical and getting things done. And I just thought this is where I need to be. Uh, this is where people are getting stuff done that I agree with. And they're actually getting it done. They're not just talking and theorizing. And I was just so impressed. And so then after AOC won, I checked out my local DSA chapter, Tacoma DSA. And I, what I really liked about it, aside from all the campaigns they were doing, is that I think it was about 100 years ago, a lot of the uh, socialist groups had these clubs. So there were very wholesome, healthy things. They would go out hiking and inhale the alpine air and, you know, go to the beer halls and, um, I don't know, play checkers together. I don't know, all this wholesome stuff. Well, and, right, the whole social world of socialism that existed 100 years ago, both in the U.S. and especially throughout Europe and countries like Germany, right? That, that was, it, it had created an entire world for people to live in that ranged from your political activity to the social yeah, and I really like that. You know, we don't have just our monthly general meeting. <clears throat> There's going to be at least two or three things per week that you could go to related to Tacoma DSA. And this is in Tacoma, a city of 200,000. And we're not <clears throat> not as large as New York City DSA, but there's it's just so active and vibrant. And then I also really liked that it's there's solidarity when... Uh, so, for example, I've talked about the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee. That came out of a building called the Tiki Apartments that was uh, extremely low-income, uh, apartments, people living there, many um, had a felony or they were on disability, they had been homeless or they were in recovery, and this was their last stop between, it was this, and if they didn't have this, it would be homelessness. And that's what happened to a lot of them. An out-of-town developer came in, bought it, gave them 14 days eviction notice after some of them had been living there for 10 years or more, and uh, said, you know, get out so that we can renovate and double, triple the rents. And that's what the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee came out of. And Tacoma DSA was very involved with that. And um, it start, I remember this was before I was involved with, I had joined Tacoma DSA, but I remember seeing the first stirrings of this happening. And the first things I saw were pictures on social media of socialist longshoremen showing up to the Tiki apartments with their trucks and helping people move and fundraising and like, hey, we need cardboard boxes. We're anybody have boxes or um, so-and-so like um, their phone got cut off and they only need $30 to get it back on, but they can't because they have to pay for deposit. And then everybody chips in and, you know, they're able to get their phone service back on that kind of thing. And just true solidarity that's in a society that I think probably a lot of people listening to this can relate to, you know, living in a capitalist society where everybody is rated on how many economic widget outputs they can create <laughs> is very isolating and alienating and depressing. And so to find a community of people who are getting things done on so many different fronts, but also taking care of each other and other people in the community with true practical help was really inspiring. So you have on your official website at Rebecca for com the right under your experience subheading, you talk about 
uh, moving to Tacoma and getting sober there and uh, having formerly been an alcoholic and, and that you've been you haven't been uh, you haven't drank anything in a, in a while and I'm interested in this uh, not to s- talk about the details of that but more like why you felt like you could be open about that on your campaign website because I feel like there's a kind of generational shift that's been happening lately where previously in order to be taken seriously as a candidate you you could if you had something like that you sort of had to keep it under wraps uh, that that people who had these kind of personal problems in our lives as all of us do uh, had to pretend like they didn't exist but it seems like in- increasingly on a whole range of issues uh, people from our generation and younger are being very open about uh, their own personal struggles and that it is not an insurmountable stumbling block to something like uh, becoming elected to Congress. Yeah, so it was a tough decision because I did for a long time think you do have to be this perfect or seemingly perfect human being. And of course, nobody's perfect. So it just means you have to pretend you are and hide anything negative about yourself and hope it isn't found out. And I... You know, as I thought about it more, I thought, I don't think that's the case. I see more politicians being open um, about struggles they've been through in their lives. And I think also, honestly, it's an asset because addiction is a serious issue in our district and across the country. And we have politicians talking about, oh, what will we do and wringing our hands? Like, you know, I know what we'll do because I understand. I've been through it. I've gotten sober. I'm very active in the recovery community in Tacoma. And I see the real world effects of us not having something, for example, like Medicare for all. So I think it's really trifle the biggest ways to address the addiction and alcoholism is an addiction, the addiction epidemic. One is housing for all. One is jobs for all with a federal jobs guarantee. And one is addiction treatment. One thing a lot of people don't realize is that detoxing from alcohol can be fatal and you can't just uh, go off the booze and in your apartment if some people need medical treatment in order to do that. And I have, you know, there's a, a chaplains in the har- chaplains on the harbor and the poor people's campaign in Washington state is very active in my district in, <clears throat> in Grace Harbor County. And there's a, a Episcopal priest there who has tattooed on her arms the names of people who have died waiting in line for treatment. And that is what we see with not having Medicare for all. And like, I see people trying to get sober and not being able to, and you know, addiction untreated is fatal. And so these are the real world policies of results of not having these policies. And then in terms of, you know, I sit on the Tacoma Disabilities Commission. I care a lot about disability rights and activism and One uh, phrase that is used a lot in the disabilities rights community is nothing about us without us. And I would like that to be the case for uh, addressing all the hand wringing and talking about the addiction epidemic, like for us to be part of that. And then in terms of, you know, seeming like the perfect politician and what making me think I could do that. I mean, I see people who are being very open and upfront, you know, about things they've gone through past being incarcerated in the past Uh, stuff like that. And I don't think it's a hindrance anymore. And I think that it's a way that the um, establishment, corporate, corporate establishment keeps us out by saying, oh, well, if you ever even got a parking ticket, don't even bother running for Congress. You have to be rich, white, male and perfect and morally flawless. And you have to probably be an Episcopalian and go to church every Sunday and otherwise don't even freaking bother. And none of that is true. And um, people 
have, I don't talk, like, I'm ha- happy to talk about it on the podcast. And for anybody listening, Micah asked my permission ahead of time. He didn't spring it on me, so don't worry. And um, it's like, people have, I don't talk about it, but I have it on my site. And uh, part of going through my mind as well was, you know, maybe the opposition would find out and I don't want voters to feel like I had the secret that was sprung on them. I just want to be upfront and honest and open with them. And people have come up to me and said, I really, you know, congratulations, I'm happy for you. And I liked reading that on your site. I have yet to get anything negative about it. You were endorsed by the People's Policy Project, which has put out a few endorsements in this cycle how do you view them as a site from which you could uh, get ideas for policy that uh, you could legislate with once you were on Capitol Hill? I think they'll be a major source from which I'll get policy ideas as, a, as somebody on Capitol Hill because I'm getting ideas from them as a candidate right now. And I love, you know, I listen to the Brunings podcast. I listen when I, there's an issue where I see people on left Twitter arguing about some finer point. I'm like, you know, they probably have an episode on this and I'll go look and then they usually do and they go into the finer points and I can learn more about it. And but then also just in these broad visionary ways, like the family fun pack is a really visionary, huge, transformative policy. And so they what I, that's what I love about it, because usually um, think tanks are just so they get into all the wonkery. And they stay in the tiny little details and like, well, we'll give people like half a cent um, tax credits and then over 10 years, they'll get an extra 50 cents and whatever, stuff like that. And the People's Policy Project is so visionary and big and broad in the way they look at things, but also incredibly research-based. And another example is that I knew when I launched the campaign, I wanted to have national rent control. And I've had that on my platform since the beginning. I looked into it. I did research trying to find out, have we had it in the past? We have. We had it during World War II. And President Nixon instituted it. Made him pop- It was a popular thing for him to do. Um, President Truman wanted it because he thought it would stave off communism. <laughs> I don't know the logic there. And then, uh, so we've had it before. It's constitutional. It's illegal. And I was, at the time, earlier in my campaign, was like, why is nobody talking about national rent control? And I was trying to find, reached out to a couple of journalists who had written about state-level rent control in Oregon and New York and asked, do you know anybody talking about it? They said no. And then I DM'd Matt Brunick and I said, do you know anybody talking about it? He was like, well, actually I do. And then he introduced me to Peter Gowan, who was with the coalition that wrote the Homes Guarantee, which is, uh, they advise, uh, observing from the outside, it seems quite clear that they advise Bernie because the Homes Guarantee platform and Bernie's housing platform are very, very similar. And, um, before they rolled out, before Bernie rolled out his policy, before the Homes Guarantee policy rolled out, Peter Gowan got on the phone with me and we talked for about 45 minutes about national rent control. And he said, you know, they had a team of lawyers looking into it. And, you know, when the real estate lobby inevitably challenges it and brings lawsuits to court and stuff, how will we respond, that kind of thing. And as a candidate, it was such a relief to know that somebody else was talking about this and looking into it, researching it, looking into all the ramifications and then also for him to say, like, yeah, sure, and here's the policy brief we wrote. Um, I'll send it over. Feel free to use it for your policy. And then I could read that, look, at it, look into it myself. And I think that's something really amazing about the moment we're in right now where we have organizers, candidates, politicians, and then um, think tanks. Like there's a is it new consensus is the one that's working on the Green New Deal. And so we really have this broad ecosystem um, of every piece that is needed people doing their part of every piece that's needed to make this big change. Final question. I asked the same question to Heidi Sloan, who's a house candidate in Texas. The squad 
members like AOC and Alan Omar have made a lot of headlines for their spectacular questioning of various corporate and imperialist villains on the Hill during committee hearings. If you get elected to Congress, who is your dream corporate or imperialist or racist or, you know, polluter or whatever villain to interrogate and why? Jeff Bezos, without a doubt. I would want to ask him, why are you not giving your workers benefits? Why are you not uh, paying people living wage? Why are people peeing in bottles in your warehouses because you don't give them enough time off? Um, knowing, meanwhile, that Amazon is working on AI and robots to replace all these people, you know, it's just. And then when he they were announcing their new headquarters and all these cities across the country were obsequiously bowing down and scraping and please, Amazon, come give us all your gifts. Like it just uh, it enrages me, and I really would love to question him. Well, if Jeff Bezos is listening to this podcast, he <laughs> up his uh, donations to Kilmer. We are running against, but I hope I hope that doesn't happen for your sake. <laughs> right. Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Micah. The vast majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio Ten in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com. 